Our scripture this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Well, how do you know? How do we know that the Bible is God's word? That's what we're going to talk about today in 2 Timothy 3. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open there or pull it up on your phone as we follow along. This year, we're going through the year of the Bible from uh, Genesis to Revelation, from January to December, and we got to the 12th month of the year, and I thought, you know, we should probably give a sermon on what is the Bible and how do we know that the Bible is God's word. Um, I imagine, I, I don't know this to be true, but I imagine that for a lot of you, as we've been going through this year of the Bible, and you've been reading on your own, and I'm so encouraged by how many of you have taken up the challenge to read all or part of the scripture as we go through the, the year together. Um, I imagine for some of you, there have been things you've read that you have brought you to worship, have brought you to awe, have brought joy into your life, and you've read them and said, yes, I'm so glad this is in God's word. And then I imagine some of you, probably the same people I have at other times, read stuff and said, what on earth is that doing in God's mouth or on God's lips? How on earth could that be true? How could that be real? How could that be in the Bible? Maybe it's brought up anger in your heart. Maybe it's even brought in disgust, if we're honest, towards God for what you read in his word. And because, you know, none of us is fully formed, none of us has fully had our loves reoriented towards God or our understanding complete, we've read stuff in the scriptures that we may even say we believe and we're angered by it. How do we know that this really represents what God wants us to see about him and know is true? Now, I, I want to just, uh, as an aside here, acknowledge, you know, something can be true about God and we can be angered by it, right? Something can be true about God's word and we're not yet uh, to the point where we can appreciate the beauty of it. And, and that's just true in life, right? If you take your five-year-old to go have sushi, they may turn their nose up at something that later in their life they'll find wonderful. But we need to deal with these responses that are in our soul. Like, how, how do we know that we can trust God's word? And how can we respond with gratitude and with joy at what we find in Scripture? Now, our culture would respond to these moments of disgust and anger, or the world might respond to those with saying, well, of course those are in there. This is an imperfect ancient book. It's full of some things that are good and some things that are bad, and we've evolved past that point when this was meant to be seen as God's word, and we should take what's good and leave what's bad behind. That might be how the world tells you to respond to those moments. But as a Christian, we might say, well, I, I can't do that, right? This is God's word, and, and I believe it, and I want to respond to it well. But how can I trust that this really is God's word? One of my favorite things to get to do with life groups, with Bible studies, some of you guys, have, we've done this together, is Q&A, a, a chance for you to just bring up whatever questions you might have and, and get to respond to them. And I love doing this for a couple of reasons. One, I don't have to prep anything ahead of time, which is a bonus for a pastor. Uh, but more than that, it's because I love hearing what questions are honestly on your hearts. And 
it's a lot easier to respond to questions you really have than questions you've never wondered about. And the question over the years of doing Q&A with some of you that comes up more and more than any other question is, how do I know the Bible's worthy of my trust? How can I be confident that the Bible that I have in my hands is really God's word? And why should I stake my life on what's written in here? And that's not a question that's rare. That's not a question that's uncommon. That's a question that I've heard from so many people of so many different generations, of so many different backgrounds. And it's a question that has taken root in my heart, in your heart, and in so many of our hearts over my lifetime. A couple years ago, I was having lunch with a good friend of mine who's in vocational ministry. And he said, Bob, can I just ask you, you can't fire me because I don't work at your church. So can I ask you, like, how do I know this is God's word? Like, how can I, like, did I miss a shelf of books in seminary somewhere? Like, how can I trust that this is really what God wants us to believe and to know? How do I have confidence that the scriptures in my hands are God's word? Well, the sermon today and, and our, our time together in 2 Timothy would be my response to my friend. It'd be my response to my own background, my own experience with this question over the course of my life. In some ways, I've been working on this sermon for 20 years. And um, it's my response to the, those of you guys who uh, have been in groups that have asked me this as well. What is scripture? What does scripture do? How do we know we can trust it? And how should we respond to it? That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start in verse 16. What is Scripture? Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. What he's saying is that what you have in your Bible originates from the mind and mouth of God. Now, don't take me literally here. I don't believe God literally has a mouth. That's an anthropomorphic language to describe something that's true, that, that God speaks this, that his mind explains this for our benefit. And then it, it's God-breathed, meaning that it comes out of his mind for our benefit. Um, this is an important concept for us to get across, that Scripture comes not from the mind of people, but from the mind of God through the means of people. That God desires to communicate to us. That humans have not just grasped around in the dark on their own, but that he has initiated a way through his word for us to understand him. If you have an old King James Bible, it'll say that, all scripture is given by inspiration. Given by inspiration. Inspiration is just an anglicization of the Greek word that means to breathe out. That scripture is breathed out by God for our benefit. Now, this isn't what I'm inspired by. You know, I might be inspired by a lot of things. I might be inspired by a sunset or by a Marvel movie or by a, a piece of music I hear or something. Is anyone inspired by a Marvel movie? Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Hard pushback on that, all right? <laughs> no, this, when we say Scripture is inspired, we're not saying that it inspires us, though it may do that, or hopefully it does that. But we're saying that Scripture in its very nature is inspired, it's breathed out by God for our benefit. And it, that doesn't mean that God whispers in Paul's ear and Luke's ear and Isaiah's ear what, he's supposed, what they're supposed to write down. They write down on their own free will, but that it's carried along by the process of God's providence. This concept of the breath of God is really important in Scripture. And, and uh, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on how God's breathing out of Scripture is reflective of the way that he breathes out and creates throughout the whole of what Scripture reveals. Here, here's what I mean. At the very beginning of creation, what does it say God does? It says by his breath, he creates the universe, right? By his word, he speaks it into existence. And then when humanity is created, when Adam and Eve are created, he gives them life by breathing into their nostrils. Again, Probably not literally, but that's meant to be a poetic image of the idea of the breath of God creating that which we know to be life today. 
And then in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, what does it say that Jesus is? It says John 1.1 1, 1 says that he is the word of God. Right? He is the one who gives the breath of God voice. He is described as the one who represents God's activity in, on earth. And then when we see Jesus act, what does he do? Right? Through his breath, through his words, he's able to speak things into existence. Just as God the Father is able to do this, God the Son, Jesus being of nature with his Father, is able to do and accomplish the same things. So even as uh, the Father is able to speak creation into existence, Jesus the Son is able to speak through his words the healing of people he interacts with, the creation of, um, the creation of food through his gratitude to the Father in the feeding of the 5,000. He speaks and the storm on the sea is calmed, and he even speaks and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And at the end of John, after Jesus breathes his last on the cross, that's how his death is described, his breath returns and he breathes into the nostrils, or he breathes onto the disciples and the Holy Spirit is given to them at the end of John. And 1 Thessalonians says that at the breath of Jesus one day in the future, it'll destroy the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist will be destroyed. Now, I know there's a lot of different topics in there. Don't, don't get hung up on the Antichrist stuff right now. My point is that the breath of God throughout Scripture brings life, and it is the breath of God that is able to cause God's will to be accomplished. The breath of God that we see in action in Scripture is the same breath of God, Paul says, that creates and carries along Scripture for our benefit. Now, when Paul says all Scripture here to Timothy, he's actually referring to the Old Testament, the Scriptures that Timothy has learned since his childhood from his mother and from his grandmother, the Scriptures that Timothy learned in order to prepare him to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself upholds these same scriptures, the same Old Testament, as the word of God for our benefit. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the Old Testament, not even a dash or a dot of it, will pass away. That the Old Testament is for our benefit because it represents the very word of God. The New Testament authors as a whole hold up the Old, the New Testament authors hold up the Old Testament as the word of God for our benefit. And of the 39 books in the Old Testament, 38 of them are quoted uh, by the New Testament authors as a way to make their point. Anyone know which one Old Testament book doesn't get quoted in the New Testament, by the way? Anyone from 930 whisper the answer in your ear? You're, you've already heard this sermon, Josie. The answer is Esther, by the way. Thanks for ruining it, Josie. No, no I'm just... Thanks for sitting through the sermon again. I appreciate that. This one's going to be really long because there's no service after it, so we're just going to... Two hours. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a joke, just to harass you. My point, what's my point of this? Paul's telling Timothy that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures he's learned, have been breathed out by God and are for their benefit. And now, you might ask the question then, what about the New Testament? We'll get to that in a little bit. But because these scriptures are breathed out by God, we should expect them to accomplish something, Right? Because whenever we see the breath of God in action in Scripture, it is accomplishing something meaningful. And in Hebrews 4, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't return void. So what is the word of God meant to do? What's it meant to accomplish? Well, that's what Paul describes in verse 14 and 15. He says in verse 15 that Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy has come to salvation in Christ, not just because of his mom's faith and his grandmother's faith, not just because of Paul's influence in his life, but because the scriptures that he's learned from childhood have opened himself to the message of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, 
his mother's influence, his grandmother's influence were important. People's influence in general are important in all of our choices, whether to follow God or not. But ultimately, Paul's point is that the purpose of Scripture is to make us wise for salvation. I can love the Bible as a book or a collection of books, and, I, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know, maybe you're literary, maybe you're not. Maybe the idea of, you know, all the references of where the scriptures refer to each other you find fascinating, the imagery or the metaphor or the poetry you find fascinating. Maybe you love the way that the different languages operate. Maybe you don't. But ultimately, the purpose of scripture is to make us wise for salvation. John Piper says it this way, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes, not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them, I can't see what is lovely. I love the Bible the way I love my eyes because they help me to see what's true about Jesus. They help me see what's true about God. Now, that said, um, I imagine there's some people here who maybe are saying, look, I, 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 I think I believe in God. I know I believe in God. I think I might believe in Jesus. I, you know, the idea of him being God's son and coming to die for my sins, I, I can get behind that. I don't know about the Bible being God's word and it being literally true. That just seems like too much for me. So how do we respond to that, or how, how do you think through that? Well, I guess a couple things. One, I, I think you can make a meaningful profession of faith and become a Christian where you still have a low view of Scripture or a small view of Scripture. Uh, I think we see that consistently in the New Testament, where people don't know much about God, they don't know much about Jesus, they certainly don't know much about the Scriptures, but they want to follow Jesus. And I think that's wonderful. And if that's where you are, we're really glad you're here, and we're glad you're moving in the direction of coming to know God. Um, God may use his word to save you even if you're not sure you totally believe it yet. And God's very kind like that. But the purpose of his word is to bring people to salvation, right? When John wrote his gospel in John 19, he said the reason he wrote it, according to John 19.35, is so that you may believe. And it, so if your view of scripture is, you know, I'm not sure if I believe all of it, but I believe enough to follow Jesus, that's, that's a wonderful place to start. But if you've been a Christian for a while, and you would say, I follow Jesus as my Lord. He is the authority in my life. Everything I do is to serve and follow him. I believe that he is smarter than me. He is wiser than me. He knows things about me I don't know about myself. His life is, his life is the life I aim to emulate. If, if that's your sort of profession of faith, and then you say, you know, but his view of scripture is pretty dumb. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how internally consistent that is. Right? If you really want to follow Jesus as the Lord of your life, at least I think you should have the same view of Scripture that he had. And if you look at the Gospels, Jesus continually held up God's word as the authority by which he judged his own success, his own purpose, and his own sense of what was right and wrong. Well, okay, let's, let's get back to 2 Timothy here for a second. Um, 2 Timothy, like all the New Testament, was written for a purpose. It was written to get across a certain set of ideas. And uh, in this case, Paul's writing to Timothy, Paul was one of the early apostles of the church. Timothy was a, a pastor of an early church that Paul was mentoring. And he wanted to encourage him to stand firm when he was facing the pressures of this world. And what Paul was essentially trying to get across to Timothy was that when there are hard times, the scriptures are worth standing on. And one of the pressures that was coming into Timothy's life at this point were two false teachers, a guy named Hymenaeus and a guy named Philetus. And I have to look down every time because I don't know anyone who's ever been named Hymenaeus and Philetus. I guess because heretics don't usually get people named after them. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Is that a controversial take that they're heretics? Anyway, they're trying to persuade Timothy and the Ephesian church to move on, uh, move on from the historic belief 
and the literal resurrection of Jesus and take a more sort of abstract view on a spiritual resurrection. Now, we're not going to get time to get into that whole debate right now, but the point of this is that as so often happens in church history, there comes a point, uh, for some of, some of you it might happen in your, in your teenage years, your 20s, your 30s, where you feel like, you know, I really need to move on from my childhood faith. It was fine to believe in the Bible as God's word when I was a kid. That was helpful, developmentally appropriate. But now that I'm, whatever, now that I'm grown up, whatever that might mean, I need to smooth off some of these edges from my childhood faith. And Timothy is faced with that same sort of pressure. I mean, after all, how do you continue to defend a literal physical resurrection when it's getting to be 65, 70, 75 AD, whenever 2 Timothy might have been written? And it looks like, man, is Jesus really literally coming back? And Hymenaeus and Philetus come in and say, oh, see, it's because what you learned was so simple and we have something more complex we can teach you now. And you and I might face that same concern. We reach an age or a stage of our life where we say, you know, maybe there's a, a more mature way to smooth out these problems. And so Paul's word in verse 14 is the same word to us. As for you, continue in what you've learned and you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the authors of the scripture are worthy of their trust because of the way they have been persistent and faithful, even in the midst of overwhelming oppression and opposition. The apostles who wrote it suffered for Christ without ever denying the faith. If you look back up a few verses into verse 10, Paul tells Timothy that you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering. The New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament are written by apostles and on behalf of apostles who even at the cost of their own life were willing to bear witness to what they had seen and what they had heard about Jesus Christ. And while there would become people after them, people like Hymenaeus and Philetus and in our own generation, other names that we could include here, that we're trying to smooth out or calm the problems. Paul tells Timothy and tells us as well, don't give in to people who are trying to smooth out the difficulties at the cost of forgetting what is true about Jesus and what is true about what we have seen and heard. In 1 John, um, John opens up his letter by saying, that which was, that which was from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's what he's writing about. The things he's seen and heard. The apostles themselves write uh, the New Testament, or in Luke's case, he writes on behalf of probably uh, James and Mary and Paul, or in Mark's case, he writes on behalf of Peter, in order to tell people that this is their legal testimony to that which they've seen. And even in John's case, he'd be beaten, threatened, ultimately die in exile on Patmos for his testimony. He's not giving in. Peter would die a, a martyr, probably uh, crucified upside down because of what he believed, but he was not going to give in. And for, for the early church and for us today, there's an importance of asking the question, who do we trust and who do we believe about what's true about Jesus? Now, there's an argument that sometimes comes in here that says, sure, they were apostles, they were leaders in the early church. This may represent what they really believed, but there's no, way, there's no reason to think we should take their writings so seriously 2,000 years later. I mean, they were just writing letters. That, they were just letters. And we could have taken any number of other people's letters and made the New Testament out of them. Why are you taking so literally what they wrote? 
And I would say that the response that comes from the New Testament itself is because they didn't think they, didn't think they were just writing letters. The apostles who, who consi- whose writings consist of the New Testament saw what they were writing as forming the doctrine of the emerging Christian movement and saw themselves as speaking on behalf of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says it this way. We also thank God constantly for this, that when we receive the word of God, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So I, I know I read that quickly and poorly in one case. Uh, but what Paul is saying is, what I'm writing to you is not just a letter, not just my advice, not even just my authority, but it's the word of God for you. And it wasn't just Paul that thought this. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says that what he is writing is the same as what the prophets of old were writing. At the end of Revelation, John says that his writing brings with it a blessing for those who read it and believe and a curse on those who oppose it. Mark opens his gospel by saying that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's about to write. My point is that the apostles knew it was their responsibility to witness to what they had seen in Jesus. It was their burden to say what was true, and it was their authority to establish the new canon of Scripture. They did it orally at first in the early church, and then as time went on, they began to write it down for the benefit of churches where they couldn't be physically present. And to suggest that they didn't know they had this authority or didn't think they did or other people did as well just flies in the face of all all that the New Testament represents, and all that the early church fathers wrote about. In fact, the early church responded to these apostolic claims of authority with near universal receptance. Um, Now, I don't know if you guys ever come across these YouTube videos or or shows on the History Channel that will say, you know, there were a lot of books that could have been in the New Testament. There were a lot of things that were sort of floating around, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and who knows which four they could have chosen. They just put them in a hat and chose whichever ones they wanted. Have you guys ever come across that argument? I'm not looking to create doubt where there's not, so let me just, you can just ignore that if that's not a problem for you. Um, I guess you can't now. So how do we respond to that? Why did they choose these 27 books? Why didn't they choose the other ones? Well, a couple of reasons. One, um, those other ones were written a couple hundred years later, and they really weren't present in the early church, and they weren't there at the time when they were making those decisions. But secondly, the other reason why it's important to have confidence that the books that are in your New Testament are the ones that were intended to be part of the Bible, is because those are the ones that the early church received as bearing the apostolic teaching, they received as being fruitful, and they received as being consistent with the rest of what they had heard and believed. The church fathers would say that we weren't really establishing the canon, we were discovering what God had used as the rule of faith. Uh, Canon, by the way, um, has taken on sort of a new life in popular culture because of all the stuff on the internet about Marvel and Star Wars and whatever. And so you'll hear it sometimes used as, does this movie count as canon for the Marvel universe? Does this count as canon for Star Wars? And I'm really helpful, I'm really grateful for that because no one ever used that term before. So canon just means a rule, a ruler. And the canon is that which we measure our faith by. I feel like I'm going too fast. Let me try to slow down here. What, what Paul is saying, what, what the New Testament authors are saying, is that what we have in our 27 books of the New Testament, represents what we can trustworthy build our lives on. And it's, it's tied to the apostles, it's consistent with the other teachings, and it's fruitful. Now, I would love to spend time, but we, we don't have it, 
on talking about why we can trust that the books that were written originally were transmitted faithfully and were translated carefully. Um, again, we don't have time to talk about that, so catch me sometime afterwards. We'll get some iced tea, and we can talk about the transmission of... Uh, Why is iced tea weird? <laughs> Seems like a very normal beverage. And we talk about transmission and translation. All right. Well, I, I don't want to end here because I, I don't want you to just, my fear with this sermon would be that you would take it and say, well, I can trust that the Bible is God's word and that's academically and intellectually fulfilling and that's helpful and I can now have confidence in that and I can close my Bible and go on. Because actually how the Bible is described is not just something that we should know, but something that has authority on our life and something that produces fruit in us. The ball is in our court, right? Scripture not only matters intellectually, but it matters in our life. As Paul says in verse 16, all Scripture is, t- is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Essentially, he, he creates this beautiful little symmetry here where he says, Scripture shows us what is right, what is wrong, what is wrong, and what is right. It shows us what our lives should look like and shouldn't look like. It teaches us which ways to go and which ways not to go. Scripture is relevant and helpful for all of us, regardless of generation, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality or language, regardless of our background, regardless of what we've done right or done wrong. Scripture shows us which direction to walk in. Scripture is relevant for the person who's living in 65 AD in Turkey, where it was originally intended, and it's relevant for the person living in Seal Beach in 2019. And if I can, if the Lord waits this long, it'll be relevant for the person living in Ghana in 2300, and the person living in Argentina in 2600, and it'll be relevant for the person living in the year 3000 in Papua New Guinea, right? Scripture is relevant at all times and in all places. And because of that, it needs to be taught, and we need to be taught, every individual and every culture. There is no people group that is above their, their culture or traditions being corrected or confronted by Scripture. There's no individual who can say, I've got it all figured out now, regardless of what someone might have said at the Thanksgiving table this week. There is no uh, people group that can say, we have nothing to repent of or nothing to apologize for. And there is no people that can say, this is beyond us or too much for us. Scripture belongs in every tongue and tribe and nation. And that's why organizations like Wycliffe that work to translate the Bible into every language and dialect are to be commended and encouraged. Because everyone should have a copy of the Scriptures in their own language and in their own tongue that their mom taught them. And as we bring Scripture to every person around the globe, we bring with them not just a cultural, uh, something to push onto their culture, but the word of God for them, where he wanted to speak to them in their own voice. And because of that, once scripture soaks into our life, we become equipped for what God has made us for. In verse 17, he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or we could translate that, so that the Christian person may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture prepares us for that good that is in front of us. When we read scripture, memorize scripture, meditate on it, think about it, it prepares us for the day that's in front of us. I grieve to think about how many times I have failed to love my wife or my kids or you well because I failed to open up the Bible in the morning. I, I, I am grieved to think about how many opportunities I've missed to be a blessing to someone because I have snarkily said, oh, I already know that. 
Now, we tend to only want to know things when we need to know them, right? I have never cared so deeply about the topic of the inspiration of Scripture as this week when I had to give a sermon on it. And I've sat in a lot of sermons um, around my life where I've, in my flesh, thought, "Ah, I don't need to know that, or why do I care about that? Sort of like the teenager who says, why do I need to know trigonometry? I'm never going to need that in real life. And you say, well, you're probably right, but you still need to get an A in it. (laughs) Um, Paul is saying that you do need to know Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is to prepare you for the good that God is going to put in your path. Through knowing God's Word, you are going to be more helpful to the people around you than if you don't. And it's up to you to decide how well-prepared you want to be. Like, how well-prepared do you want to be for that which is in front of you? Like a soldier going into battle, do you want to just sort of wing it and figure out you'll just shoot who you see? Or do you want to know what the battle plan is? Like a surgeon who's about to open up a patient, do you want to just figure out what those squiggly things are on the inside when you get there? Or do you want to know ahead of time? Or an astronaut headed into space, do you want to be well prepared or not? How well equipped do you want to be for what God has in front of you? Now, sometimes the response to that can be like, yeah, but this is an ancient document. Like, how can something that was written 2,000 years ago prepare me to live in a life of nuclear weapons and Prozac and birth control and democracy? And how am I supposed to understand the world that I'm in today in light of what Scripture teaches? I think this is a good way to end because the more time I spend in Scripture, the more I realize that its main purpose isn't just to give us a list of yeses and nos, but to show us the beauty of God. The main way I think Scripture equips us for every good work is to show us the timeless God that we love and that loves us. To show us that we're loved by him. To show us that we're cared for by him. And that he calls us to a life as his sons and daughters. And the more time I spend in scripture, yeah, yeah, there there are specific directions in scripture that do help with everyday decisions. And a lot of those everyday decisions are more timeless than I often think they're going to be. But the main way scripture prepares us for every good work is by showing us the one who prepares those good works before us. Well, one question for you to reflect on, um, and I only gave you one because I, I think it's a really important one, and I knew this sermon was going to run long, so I had to keep it short at the end. How are you expecting God to use Scripture to change you? Like, at its core, how, what expectations do you have for God to use Scripture in your life? And I tried to word that as carefully as possible because I don't think Scripture changes us. I think God changes us through means of the Scripture. But what expectations do you have for God about that? Like, is your expectation kind of that you're just right about everything at this stage of your life and you, you actually don't really need to be changed anymore? Is your expectation that God's going to use uh, the Atlantic or Huffington Post or Fox News to change you and that really Scripture only has sort of an ancillary role to confirm what you already believe? Is your expectation that um, really other people need to be changed, other people need to know the Bible, but not you anymore? Well, what's the reality of your heart? I'd encourage you to take this question, spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes with God this week sometime, Maybe in quiet, open your hands before God and say, God, show me the truth. Like, do I expect you to use scripture to change me anymore? Or have I become stubborn or hard-headed or grumpy? Or God, am I even looking to you to change me? Am I looking much more to the patterns of this world to change me? God, what's the truth of my heart? Now, whatever you find, whatever the truth is, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're loved by God, it's not gonna change that. You may find the, the deepest ugliness about your motivations before God. You may not hear anything in that moment. That's okay too. But, but there's the act of opening yourself, knowing that you're loved by God, saying, God, would you just show me the truth? Right? I want to be open to hearing your word. Would you show me what's true about my heart and my expectations for you in that? 
Well, we're going to take communion here in a moment, and we're going to take the bread and cup together. And I'm really glad we get to do this, because the bread and cup is a reminder for all of us that we need the grace of God, right? That none of us have loved God's word the way we should. None of us have been obedient the way that we should. And all of us have gone our own way. We've all gone astray, even this week, even today. And we know that we need the grace of God. We need him to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And the bread and cup's a reminder of that. He has done that in the cross, and he continues to do that and to uphold us. So if the ushers who are going to help with that could come forward at this time, um, let's spend a couple minutes praying together. God, I am so grateful for your word. I'm grateful that you've chosen to speak to us. God, I confess that so often I take scriptures for granted, or I sit in judgment of them, or I act like I'm above them. God, would you give me the humility, give us the humility and the courage to shape our lives by what you have said so that we may be prepared for every good work that you place in our path this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple words of instruction.